If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those, open them up to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. I want to talk to you this morning about Happy Meals. I love McDonald's. I am the oldest of three boys and Uh, When I was growing up, my dad, every Saturday morning, would take one of us boys out to McDonald's for breakfast. And so I grew up with warm memories of McDonald's. When I was a teenager, I used to eat there uh, all the time. When I first met my wife, Katie, on our very first date, this is December 8th, 1989, I took her to a movie, The Little Mermaid was playing in the theaters, and then I took her to McDonald's. I wanted to share the goodness. And... On the one year anniversary of our first date, exactly one year later, December 8th, 1990, we went back to that same McDonald's. It's there on the range line and Katie went up to the counter. She ordered her Diet Coke and the McDonald's guy brought out from behind the counter this great big vase of red roses. They were from me, not the McDonald's guy. And I took Katie back to that booth where we had had our first date and I got down on one knee and I proposed to my wife in McDonald's. Thank you very much. I am a hopeless romantic, what can I say? We got married. We moved to Carbondale, Illinois. We bought a house three blocks from McDonald's. It's been an important part of our family's life. When my son Luke was nine years old, one time we were eating uh, down in the cafeteria here on campus and uh, Luke looked up at me nine and he said, Dad, wouldn't it be great if someday they built a McDonald's here on this campus? And at that moment, I was so overcome with pride and emotion. The Bible says to train up a child in the way that he should go. And and I've I've done this. And and whenever we were growing, when my kids were growing up, when I would take them to McDonald's, did you ever do this? My kids always wanted to order the same thing every time. They wanted to order that kids package that somebody in a moment of marketing genius called a Happy Meal. Because you are not just buying a burger and fries and a little 50 cent toy. Oh no, you are buying happiness. John Orberg is one of my favorite writers. And he writes this about Happy Meals. He says, you know that McDonald's inflates the price of that Happy Meal far beyond the value of that prize. I try to buy my kids off sometimes, he says. I tell them to just get the food and I'll give them 50 cents to buy a toy on their own. But the cry goes up, we want a Happy Meal. All over the restaurant, people are craning their necks to look and see who is this tight-fisted, penny-pinching, cheapskate of a parent who would deny a child the meal of great joy. (laughs) So I buy each child his own, and they're happy, at least for a minute and 30 seconds. And then he says this, the problem with happy meals is that the happy always wears off. Now that's just true. No child ever discovers lasting happiness at McDonald's. Uh, Pretty soon the excitement wears off and and they need another fix. Now you'd think that eventually they would catch on, but they don't. They keep buying them and they keep not working. The problem with Happy Meals is that the happy always wears off. Now, of course, only a child would be so naive, right? Only a child would be so foolish as to think that happiness is something that could be bought. Or maybe 
when we get older, maybe we don't get any smarter. Maybe our happy meals just get more expensive. Because, you tell me if you think this is true, I believe all of us in the human race, we feel the hunger. We're finishing up the series in Revelation today. We've called this series Overcome. My assigned topic this morning, Overcoming the Curse. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, all of creation, all of humanity has been under a curse. And all of us, we have been haunted since Genesis 3. The human race has by this, this discontentment. We all feel this sense of, of disappointment, of dissatisfaction, this nagging feeling that, that we're missing something. And we all try to feed this emptiness in our souls with all different kinds of things. I mean, it might be uh, money or jobs or sports or success or, or sex or video games. or uh, the, the, the happy meals are all different, but the hunger is universal. We're all looking for something. And here's the problem. Even when we find what we're looking for, it doesn't satisfy. Now, all of us feel disappointment when things go wrong in life. When you can't pay your school bill, when you're flunking your classes, when the relationship with the boy or girl did not work out, when cancer strikes, when car wrecks happen. We all feel disappointment when things go wrong in life. But I'm talking about the disappointment we feel when things go right. When... You do get your bill paid and you ace your classes and you get the girl and you get the job and you get the house and it seems like everything is great. And yet, and yet, early morning hours as you lay there awake in your bed in the dark, you are haunted by this nagging feeling that it isn't enough. Hall of Fame quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, Troy Aikman, when he won his first Super Bowl, he did not go off with his teammates that night and celebrate. Instead, he went back to his hotel room and he ordered a beer from room service and he sat on his bed in his hotel room alone. Later, he would tell a reporter, he said, I just kept thinking back to when I was a teenager and how I thought that when I turned 16 and I got my driver's license and I got a car, then I would be happy. But I wasn't. And now here I was at the pinnacle of my profession, Super Bowl champion. And I wasn't happy. All I could think of was, now what? Alexander the Great conquered the entire known world. And when he discovered that there were no more nations to conquer, he sat down and wept. Mark Buchanan is a Christian author. And Mark Buchanan says that when he held in his hands for the very first time his first published book you understand that this book was the culmination of, of 20 years of dreaming and 8 years of writing and knocking on publishers doors and hopes and dreams and prayer and sweat and when he finally held in his hand his first published book this is what he said it wasn't enough it didn't answer all my longings it didn't quell all my insecurities it didn't fulfill me. And listen, listen, listen. If you live long enough, you will discover this is true. This whole world is overrated. It is rigged for disappointment. It will always give you stones for bread. Even when we get what we want, it is never enough. Satisfaction never lasts. Even our joys are tinged with sadness. Solomon was the man who literally had it all. 
And what did he write in Ecclesiastes? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. And he knew better than anyone that the problem with happy means is that the happy always wears off. And so the question that we're left with here is this. What, what will satisfy the hunger? Is, is there anything? C.S. Lewis, you know this quote, wrote this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. In other words, this world was never meant to satisfy your hunger. It was meant to whet your appetite. That disappointment that you feel, that is not a design flaw. That is a designed flaw. God has wired discontentment into the system so that you will never lose your hunger for something that is deeper and stronger and more real than this world could ever offer. What is it? Solomon himself named in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has set eternity into the hearts of men. Oh, heaven. Heaven is what we hunger for. Now, true confession. When I was a kid, I did not really think I wanted to go to heaven because it didn't really sound all that exciting. Am I the only one here? This was my mental picture of heaven. You die, you go through the pearly gates, you get your you know, wings and your halo, and you get a hymn book, and you join the heavenly choir. And the heavenly choir director stands up and he says, I want you all to turn in your hymn books uh, to hymn number one. We're going to sing all four verses. No, skipping the third verse. And we're going to sing all the way through the hymnal. And when we get to the end, we're going to start back over at the beginning. And heaven sounded like a church service gone really, really long. <laughs> Not inspiring. And so when I was a kid, you know, John teaches us at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, to pray, come Lord Jesus. But my prayer when I was a kid, come Lord Jesus, just not yet. Because I was young. I mean, I, I had so much life left that I still wanted to live. I mean, there were, there were books that I hadn't read, mountains I hadn't climbed, whole seasons of Gilligan's Island I had never seen. I wanted to get married and have kids and travel and have adventures and live life. And sure, someday, maybe when I'm old, then I'll go to heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, just not yet. But I'm older now. And the longer I live, the more I realize this world is not my home. This world is under a curse. We are under a curse and when you read Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you realize that what you hunger for is heaven. That is what you want. Heaven is my heart's true home. Do you have your Bibles open? Revelation chapter 21. John writes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, 
saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Verse 9. Verse 10. One of the angels carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 16, the city was laid out like a square. As long as it was high... 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. As clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Listen, there will be no more curse. You understand that, biblically speaking, the phrase eternal life is not talking about a certain quantity of life. It's talking about a certain quality of life. It's not just longer life, our same old earthly existence with the end knocked out of it. No, it's a higher kind of existence. It is life without the curse. And in this text, John describes this life with three pictures. Can I, can I paint them for you? Would you see if this is what your heart hungers for? The first picture John uses, he says that heaven will be a paradise. A paradise. Where our relationship with creation will be restored. Now, paradise is a Persian word for garden. And all through this text... Echoes of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, tree of life, no pain, no death, no curse. This is Eden restored, the world the way God originally intended it to be. Now I want you to notice this, we don't actually go to heaven, heaven comes to us. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down and it settles on a brand new fresh incarnation of the planet earth. And notice that heaven is a profoundly physical place. It is not this kind of, you know, soft, white, fuzzy, fluffy, soft focus netherworld where we all float around like Casper the Friendly Ghost, you know, disembodied soul sitting on cloud nine. No. Uh Uh-uh. Okay? This is a new heaven and a new earth. When Luke, my son, was six, we were standing in the backyard. We were preparing to bury his goldfish. Uh, Goldie number three. We had killed three of these suckers. And, uh, and, uh, and so Goldie the third was in this little uh, matchbox coffin, preparing to go into this tiny little goldfish graveyard. And as we were standing there, Luke, six years old, turns to me and he says, Dad, will there be animals in heaven? 
And I had to stop for a moment and, and kind of think about that. And before I could even answer, all of a sudden Luke's face brightened. And he said, oh, oh, wait, Dad, Dad, I, I know the answer. I, I remember that story in the Bible uh, where uh, Elijah went to heaven and the fiery chariots came and got him. And it was pulled by fiery horses. There will be animals in heaven. Whew. Thanks for the help, Dad. <laughs> You're welcome, son. <laughs> and then... I thought, hey, that's pretty good. I'm going to write that down. I think I'm going to use that sometime. And you know what? Luke is right. We're going to live in this profoundly physical place, a new earth that will have rivers and mountains and trees and animals. I mean, you've heard of lions and lambs and wolves and cats, all these animals that will be in the new heavens and new earth, all the wondrous variety of creatures that we see around us, or at least most of them, maybe some of them, won't be there. I, I have a friend who says that if you die and you go to hell, that when you walk through the gates, the first words they say to you is, here's your cat. There, <laughs> there might be some animals that are part of the curse, but most of them will be there and it will be this profoundly physical place. Our relationship with creation will be restored. Right now, all of creation is under a curse. And right now, we have mosquitoes, and we have mudslides, and weeds, and floods, and drought. But in paradise, there will be no wildfires, there will be no tsunami, there will be no car accidents, there will be no Alzheimer's, there will be no EF5 tornadoes. They rip through a city and leave 161 people dead. It was four years ago that my wife, Katie, was diagnosed with endometrial stromal sarcoma. And all of a sudden, our lives became doctors and tests and bills and medicines and surgeries. My wife decided to name her tumor. Uh, she named it Jezebel. <laughs> and we prayed that God would strike that tumor down like he struck down Jezebel in the Bible and praise God he did, but we had a family member who was also a wife and also a mother and also diagnosed with cancer, and she's gone. In the new world, there will be no cancer. And in the new world, there will be no caskets and no funerals and no cemeteries and no grieving widows and no empty chairs at the dinner table. In the new world, we will have a new body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. No sickness, no disease, no time. Think about, think about the effects of time in this sin-cursed world. The effects of time on our body. You understand, of course, that time eats away at everything. With each passing day, cars rust and fruit rots and our bodies wear down. If you are over 40, can I get an amen? Thank you very much. It's the second law of thermodynamics that all of the universe is running down. Everything tends toward decay. My grandfather was a lifelong farmer in Iowa. And when he was a young man, I mean, he could work from sun up to sundown. I mean, big, strong, strapping. But as the years went by, he began to slow down and his eyesight began to dim and his hearing began to fade and his back began to weaken and his body suffered the effects of a cursed world. But what if we lived in a world unaffected by sin and time? I, I, I read a comedian one time who imagined what life would be like if time worked 
backwards. Listen to what he writes. He says, I think the life cycle is all backward. You should just die first and get that out of the way. Then you live 20 years in an old age home where you wake up feeling better every day. Then you get kicked out when you're too young. You go collect your pension, get a gold watch on your first day at work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. Then you go to college, have a great time with your friends until you're ready for high school. Then you go to grade school, you become a little kid, you play, you have no responsibilities. Then you become a little baby, you go back in the womb, you spend your last nine months floating peacefully, and you finish up as a gleam in somebody's eye. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and the first time that I read that, I laughed out loud. But then, then I thought to myself, what if? If there is time in eternity, what if it somehow works backwards? Every day is fresher and brighter than the one before. The second law of thermodynamics gets reversed. And every single day, fruit is fresher and clothes are newer and floors are cleaner. And every single morning in the new heavens and the new earth, my grandfather will wake up to go work out in those fields that he loved and he will be younger and stronger than he was the day before. That's the world I want to live in. Heaven is what my heart hungers for. Come, Lord Jesus. Heaven is pictured as a city. That's the second picture. A city where our relationship with others is restored. Now, I grew up in Iowa, out in the country. I'm a, I'm a country kid. I rode out to, uh, you know, gravel road. I grew up surrounded by, by pastures and cornfields. And so, as a country kid... Uh, city has not always been a warm word for me, you understand. When I hear the word city, I think of, you know, crowded and noisy and polluted and dirty and dangerous and crime. And why in the world would heaven be pictured as a city? You know, like my, one of my all-time favorite movies, Field of Dreams. Have you seen Field of Dreams? This is a great movie. And if you've seen it, you will remember this scene where the ball players from days gone by, these baseball players, step out of the cornfield onto this beautiful uh, baseball diamond. And they're looking around in amazement. And one of them asks, is this heaven? And the answer comes back, no, it's Iowa. Favorite movie line of all time right there. All right. That's what heaven is supposed to look like. Cornfields and pastures. And why is it pictured as a city? Well, you're wiser than I am. You understand that Revelation is a book of pictures and images and metaphors. And a city is a place where people congregate. It's a place where people live together. A city is a symbol of community. And this city is a symbol of the community of God. Coming down, dressed as a bride. Oh, oh, I recognize that language. Yeah, that's church talk. The, the, the gates of the city bearing the names of the twelve tribes. That's God's Old Testament people. Foundations of the city bearing the names of the possible, of the apostles. That's God's New Testament people. This city is a picture of the people of God. And as we walk around the city in Revelation 21 and 22, we notice the gold and all of the precious stones and the perfect symmetry. And the city is beautiful and perfect and we get the point. The people of God will someday be made beautiful and perfect. Ephesians 5, a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or, or any other blemish, holy and blameless. Revelation 21, 8 says, in the new city there will be no sin. Oh, right now, I know my sin. Steve Brown is a preacher down in Florida. And he said that one time after he got done preaching, a lady came up to him and she said, she said, you know, I've heard a lot of preachers say that they were sinners, but... You're the first one that I ever actually believed. 
And you can believe me when I say that I am a sinner. My autobiography is Romans 7. What I want to do, I never do. And what I don't want to do, I end up doing. And too many mornings I look in the mirror and I am disappointed with myself. But the good news is that in, in that new city, someday, I will be redeemed. All of the contaminants and lesser things will be gone. And I will be the map proctor that God always intended me to be. I will be my best self forever. You will be your best self forever. And that means that all of the effects of sin on our relationships will be gone. There will be no anger. There will be no abuse. There will be no betrayal. There will be no gossip. There will be no lying. There will be no jealousy. No, no, no shame. All of that gone. I love one author's description of this redeemed community in the city of God. He writes this. In the heavenly kingdom, all marriages will be healthy and all children will be safe. In that heavenly city, those who have too much will give to those who have too little. In the new earth, Israeli and Palestinian children will play together on the West Bank while their parents build homes for one another. In offices and corporate boardrooms, executives will secretly scheme to help their colleagues succeed. They will complement each other behind their backs. In the heavenly world, tabloids like the National Enquirer will have shocking stories of, of, of mothers and daughters who love each other deeply. They will have stories of men who secretly enjoy dressing as men. The news... The news will be filled with stories of courage and moral beauty. Disagreements, oh, there will still be disagreements perhaps, but they will be settled with grace and with civility. There will still be lawyers perhaps, but they will have really useful jobs like delivering pizza, <laughs> which will be non-fat and low in cholesterol. Doors will have no locks. Cars will have no alarms. Schools will no longer need a police presence because students and teachers and janitors will honor and value one another's work. And at recess, every kid will get picked for a team. Churches will never split. People will be neither bored nor hurried. No, no father will ever say to a, to a disappointed child, I'm too busy. Divorce courts? Battered women's shelters? In the new community, they will be turned into recreation centers because in that city, every time one human being touches another, it will be to express encouragement and affection and delight. No one will be lonely. No one will be afraid. People of different races will join hands. They will honor and be enriched by their differences, united in their common humanity. And in the center of this entire community will be its magnificent architect and its most glorious resident, God Himself. Listen, I'm a country kid, but that's a city I want to live in. Heaven is what my heart hungers for. Come, Lord Jesus. Last picture. Heaven is pictured as a temple. A temple where our relationship with God is restored. Now, you might have missed it in our text. In fact, in Revelation 21, John actually says, he says, I did not see a temple in the city. But then he gives us a very important clue. Because John records for us the city's dimensions. Did you pick up on that when we read it? It's 12,000 stadia long, 1,400 miles long. And it's also 12,000 stadia high and 12,000 stadia wide. In other words, this city is a perfect 
cube. There is only one other perfect cube mentioned in all of Scripture. It is the Holy of Holies. And you remember the Holy of Holies, that innermost room in the temple where God Himself dwelt between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And you talk about extremely limited access. Only one guy could go in there, the high priest. He could only go in there one day a year. Back then, God was hard to get to. But not in heaven. Because in heaven... The whole city is a temple. The whole city is the holy of holies. We will live all the time in the presence of God. That's the promise of Revelation chapter 21. God will make His dwelling with men and He will live with them. That's what makes heaven heaven. We get to live in the presence of God. You may not know the name William Dyke. He a witty, handsome young man. He was born back in 1877 in England. When he was 10 years old, in an accident, he was struck blind. Never allowed his handicap to stop him, limit him. He ended up uh, going to graduate school. He met the daughter of a British admiral, fell in love, won her heart, proposed to her. She gladly accepted. But before the admiral would give permission uh, for his daughter's hand in marriage, he insisted that William Dyke undergo a potentially dangerous surgery that might restore his eyesight. William Dyke agreed to do so, but he himself had one condition. He said, That he did not want the gauze off of his eyes, the bandages off of his eyes, until his wedding. If the surgery ended up being successful, he wanted the very first thing he saw with his new sight to be his bride. And so the surgery was completed. The day of the wedding came. William Dyke standing at the front of the sanctuary, gauze still wrapped around his eyes, his father standing right next to him. The bride began to come down the aisle, escorted by her father. And as she began to walk down, William's father began to unwind that gauze. And as she got down to the front of the church, right next to him, that last piece of gauze came off. He was standing there face to face with his Beloved, the whole congregation, of course, is watching, wondering, breathless. Did the surgery work? No one knows whether it was successful or not. And they waited to hear him speak, and they never forgot the words that he said at that moment as he stood there and looked at his bride. He said, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. And someday that will be our story. Right now, we are the bride who cannot see our groom clearly. We see him as through a glass darkly, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But then, then we shall see him face to face. In heaven, the gauze of this mortal life will fall away. The veil will be removed. We will see the one that we have loved for all our lives. And we will say, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. That's what makes it heaven. We get to be with Him. I'll close with this. This picture right here. This picture is my wife Katie's heart. My wife grew up in a little village... 100 people or so, Irwin, Missouri. To get to Irwin, Missouri, 
you would leave Joplin, you'd drive up uh, Highway 71, Highway 49, like you're going towards Kansas City, and you'd drive about 30, 45 minutes, you'd come to Lamar, Missouri, and about seven miles north of Lamar, you would see off to your right there, Highway C. You would turn east on Highway C, and, and you'd drive about a half a mile, you'd go over some railroad tracks, and then you would see off to your left a big white hay barn. You would turn in the driveway there at that hay barn, and you would be at Bunton Farms. My wife grew up in a big farming clan. She's the youngest of five kids. And this aerial photo of her homestead, this farm has been in her family for over 60 years. Her dad, Don, farmed it. Her brothers, Marty and Mike and Matt, farmed it. Now the grandsons are actually helping to farm it. And um, Katie's mom, uh, her name is Granny, our, that's what we always called her, Granny Ruth. Um, she, uh, she's the one that gave Katie this picture. You understand this picture hangs in our bedroom. And she put a little note, Granny did, right here in the bottom corner of this picture. Granny's been a, a faithful journaler for all of her life. And so she wrote on the note what was happening on the day this picture was taken. Let me read to you what, what Granny wrote here. She says, It's not art, but it's home. To Bunton Farms Incorporated, Irwin, Missouri, and to the Irwin 4-H Club, seven miles north of Lamar, Missouri, August 10th, 1983. Katie would have been about 14. This is what she wrote. The camera didn't catch, but Mom's journal shows Katie bringing the rakes in at the end of haying. Mike and Matt, those are her brothers, taking a bale wagon load to a hay customer. Marty, that's her oldest brother, was on a three-wheeler checking irrigation. Bunton Reunion Company, the Bunton Reunion's always in August, was staying overnight there in the house. And Don, that's her dad, was actually inside visiting. Oh. Ruth, that's her mama, was picking blackberries beyond the oaks. And it was hot that day. And when I look at this picture, hmm, I could not even begin to tell you how many family dinners we have eaten underneath that roof. How many baseball games we've played right out there in that front yard. How many arguments her brothers have had right there in that driveway. <laughs> they always end up friends. And you understand that when my wife looks at this picture, there are more memories than you could shake a stick at. This is her favorite place in the world. And every time, for as long as I've known her, that we have pulled in that driveway, her soul lets out a deep sigh. This is where she belongs. Her roots run so deep on this piece of ground that her veins run with Barton County dirt. This is home. Now, a few summers ago, Katie and I, we took our family on um, what I'm going to call an epic vacation. Um, I was scheduled to, to preach out in California and Oregon, and we had never taken all of our kids to go see the western United States. And so we loaded up all six 
of our kids. And uh, into, have you seen our big white van, a 15-passenger white We drive a church van, basically. And uh, it's our family vehicle. So we loaded up in that church van. And for the next 24 days, we lived out of that van. 7,000 miles, 14 states, 8 national parks. It was an epic vacation. And we saw some of the most amazing things you can ever see in your life. I made a list. We stood in wonder at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Have you been there? We marveled at the Indian cliff ruins at Montezuma's Castle in Arizona. We watched the sun set on the red rocks of Sedona. We ran in the surf at the Pacific Ocean. We took, we took all of our kids uh, to Disneyland. I spent the longest week of my life there that day. <laughs> but when we watched those fireworks over Disney's Castle, at the end of the day, my kids' eyes as wide as saucers. We went to the Ronald Reagan Library and Museum, the Hollywood sign, Grauman's Chinese Theater, to see those famous stars in the sidewalk. We walked the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, went to Pier 39 at Fisherman's Wharf to watch the sea lions. We watched the cable cars go up and down the hill. We whitewater rafted Kings Canyon, the Smith River, the Merced River. We rafted in Yosemite National Park. We climbed to the top of Yosemite Falls. We watched the moon rise over Half Dome. We saw the mighty sequoias and we went camping in the redwoods. My kids and I, we played uh, hide and seek there in the redwoods in these stumps that were literally as large as houses. We saw the, the deepest, like the clearest blue water you will ever see in the world at Crater Lake in Oregon. We explored lighthouses on the Oregon coast. We saw a pod of whales playing out in the ocean. We waded in the tide pools on the shore and we saw mussels and anemones and starfish. We camped in Yellowstone. We watched Old Faithful explode. We saw a bear, mook, elk and buffalo. We climbed to that famous bridge above the Multnomah Falls in the Columbia River Gorge and we watched a rodeo, just for you Doug Aldridge, in Cody, Wyoming. In South Dakota, in South Dakota, we were surrounded by 50,000 bikers in black leather that were there for Sturgis. And we stood and we marveled at those faces carved into Mount Rushmore. I am telling you, it was an epic vacation. And we saw, we saw some of the most beautiful sights that you can ever see in your life. Wonder after wonder. But do you know, do you know what the most beautiful thing we saw on our trip was? It was right near the end of those 7,000 miles. We're driving down Highway 71 and about seven miles north of Lamar, we saw off to the east Highway C. And we pulled off and we drove a half mile over the railroad tracks and we turned in. Right there at that big white hay farm. And as we pulled in that gravel driveway, coming right down those steps out that front door there was Granny. Big smile on her face. We've been gone 24 days. And she invited us in for supper, mashed potatoes, gravy, biscuits, apple pie. I love apple pie. And my wife wept tears of joy. It's not art, but it's home. Now you hear me, church. A day is coming when that trumpet will sound and the sun will sink in the west 
and time will be no more and we will come to the end of our long journey and when we pull in to the driveway of that celestial city, the new Jerusalem, that will be Jesus himself coming out that front door. And he will come down into that driveway to meet us and he will put his arm around our shoulder with a big smile on his face. Well done, good and faithful servant. And he will invite us in for supper, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And gathered around that table, people from every tribe and nation and language. And on that table, oh, the richest of fares, unending food. There will be an apple pie so big an angel will have to draw his sword to cut the pieces. <laughs> and we will sit at that table and we will eat and we will drink and we will laugh. And we will talk with brothers and sisters, some of whom we have never met before and some of whom we have loved so dearly. And we will sit with him. And the king will lean over. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will say, rest, my child. And eat and drink and be satisfied. Because all that is sad and evil has become untrue. And all that is good has become true. And we will be together forever. And at that moment, that joy will pierce our hearts like a sword. And that happiness will never wear off. That will be the meal of great joy. That will be the happiest meal of all. We will be home with Him. Come, Lord Jesus.